Hello and welcome to SAE Tomorrow Today. I am your host, Grayson Brulte. On today's episode, we're absolutely honored to have Patricia Moradian, President and CEO of the Henry Ford, and Matt Anderson, Curator of Transportation, the Henry Ford. On today's episode, we learn from the past, we explore the present as we prepare for the future. We discuss why hands-on innovation is important and the impact that it's had throughout society and history. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. We're delighted to be here. Thank you. We're super delighted to have you here because the Henry Ford is doing incredible things to support innovation, grow innovation, and doing wonderful things around education uh, with the high school, which we'll get into in a little bit. But before we do, Patricia, I want to go back in the in the Wayback History Museum. Being a cultural institute, you've got a lot of uh, amazing history there. The Henry Ford was uh, originally founded by Mr. Henry Ford, and it was called the Edison Institute in honor of Mr. Thomas Edison, with whom Henry Ford shared a friendship. The museum originally opened to the public in June, ni- June 22nd, 1933. Why was it founded? What was Mr. Ford's vision for opening the museum? Henry Ford was a real proponent of hands-on learning and immersive, engaging environments. And he opened the institution as a school. He wanted to have a place of learning for young people to be able to have their hands on things. So before he opened it as a school, he was collecting objects and and, uh, different artifacts of innovation that really showed how America progressed. And uh, he was a hands-on learner himself, having only had an eighth grade education. He was all completely self-taught by putting his hands on things, by taking things apart, by putting things back together. And he was really fascinated by how America progressed using the ideas of innovation and the American traditions of innovation, ingenuity, and resourcefulness. And that's what has become really the the foundation of this institution. So founded first as a school, um, and he housed all of his collections so the children could use them to learn. So they were having an immersive, hands-on experience right here uh, in the museum and, and on the grounds of the campus. Good for Mr. Ford. You mentioned collecting objects of innovation. Was that just in the particularly autom- automobile industry or did that go across multiple industries? Oh, it went across multiple. So he, you know, we have six collecting categories today and the majority of our collections, over 26 million artifacts, about a million are, are three-dimensional, were collected by Henry Ford. We still collect but we can't collect at the level that he collected at the time as he was considered one of the wealthiest men in the world. And uh, he collected engines and machinery and uh, farming equipment and sewing machines and spinning wheels. He collected buildings and had them disassembled and reassembled in Greenfield Village so that people could learn uh, from, from those buildings and from the history of those buildings. Um, the, the things that he collected were really massive. And when he opened the institution, he had agents working for him all over the country um, and they were collecting for him things that represented uh, ideas and innovations that changed the world. Matt, one of those ideas that changed the world was the plane. It, it happened at Kitty Hawk with the Wright brothers and lo and behold in Greenfield Villages, which, which is a part, incredible part of the Cultural Institute, which is the Henry Ford, the original Wright cycle shop from Dayton, Ohio, the original shop is there 
at your facility. And I want to point out that's where the Wright brothers, they operated their bicycle business and eventually invented their earliest flying machines there from 1897 to 1908. How was that historic piece of Americana secured? And was that during Mr. Ford's time where that was brought there to Greenfield Village? Because that's an important, important part of history. Yes, Mr. Ford acquired the Wright Cycle Shop in 1936. Uh, Wilbur had passed away in 1912, but Orville was still very much alive in the mid-30s and beginning to think about their long-term legacy and making sure that their story was secure. So he had connected with Mr. Ford, who admired the Wrights as uh, sort of innovators, right? Uh, self, self-taught self fellows who, who made their way. And I think also he felt a kinship with them because they were both from the Midwest. And of course, aviation and the auto industry, we don't think of them that way, but they really grew up side by side at the same time. So there was a natural relationship. And Mr. Ford uh, reached out to uh, Mr. Wright and made arrangements to purchase that building, which belonged to a, a private property owner in, in Dayton, but then was able to move it up to Dearborn. And what really makes that building special, apart from the history that took place in it, is that Orville was there to then help source some of the original tools, some of the original furnishings that were used in that building. So it feels even more authentic having his sort of seal of approval on the project. I read there was a wonderful book David McAuliffe wrote, the Wright Brothers book. And to me, reading the book, it felt like I was in a movie scene. And and it was after Wilbur's crash that, um, you know, Wilbur eventually passed, uh, passed away. Having Orville there when it was put together, what impact did that have on the way that you're curating that experience? Did you learn things from your predecessors to say, okay, this is the way to tell the Wright Brothers story? Yes, and we've always focused on on the Wright story as taking place not only in the cycle shop, but also in the home, which we have in Greenfield Village, right right next door to the cycle shop. And that's a, a fun story because Mr. Ford was trying to acquire that at the same time as the cycle shop. And Orville really couldn't understand what he wanted with the house. Why would you want this? But I think Henry Ford realized that you know the innovation process never stops, right? They were working in the shop. They were also working at home, talking with their sister, Catherine, and, and each other and so forth. So he realized that was a vital part of the story. And, and to me, that's also a part of what makes it special that we can tell both sides of the story and, and get to that point that they were always working, never stopping, much like like Henry Ford and, and Thomas Edison, another one of his heroes. You bring up the great point around the Wright brother sister because when they were in France testing the planes and the correspondence between the brothers and the sister, there was a very strong bond there. So thanks for, for pointing that out because the sister played a very important role in innovation. I love the line, the innovation never stops, but Patricia, here you are. You're the president and CEO of the Henry Ford. You're, you're, you're clearly focused on innovation. Over the last 88 years since the museum first opened the public, how are you? what's changing? How are you constantly always embracing innovation? Because you've got this incredible heritage to build on. We do. And we have an incredible collection to build on. And so the, you know, we, we have such an amazing collection of artifacts and buildings and uh, stories uh, that really our imagination is the only thing stopping us from, you know, <laughs> continuing to expand the experience and, and tell those stories. We have grown since Henry Ford uh, first founded us. Obviously, we started as a school. It morphed into a museum, but always stayed a school until the 60s. But, but to create an experience focused on uh, the American traditions of innovation and ingenuity and resourcefulness gives us a wide expanse of opportunity uh, to to immerse people in programmatic opportunities in in those different kinds of um, exhibitions that we can pull together. 
And so since then, we've had uh, the great fortune of being able to partner with, with Ford Motor Company. We're you know, separate from Ford, as you know, but we partner with them and we've created the Ford Rouge Factory Tour uh, for our guests to immerse themselves in uh, manufacturing experience. Uh, we have a giant screen theater now. Uh, the Benson Ford Research Center opens our, is an open archive for anybody to explore and understand uh, a lot of the history in our archival holdings. Um, but in addition to that, with technology, which we have fully embraced, we're able to now tell these stories beyond the campus. And so it, I always think about Henry Ford coming back and seeing who we are today. And I always imagine that he would be very, very pleased that we've embraced the innovations of technology, that we use that technology to get the stories out to audiences who might not be able to visit, uh, that we use it for our school and for our school children that visit on field trips. Um, we also have a television show. Uh, we've uh, Emmy award-winning television show called the Henry Ford's Innovation Nation that is seen all over the country on CBS every single Saturday. We're in our eighth year of uh, three Emmy awards and many, many different parent choice awards. It's a terrific educational program. It's also syndicated in 60 countries. So that helps us expand the story and expand the campus beyond uh, the physical boundaries of the 250 acres here. Um, and then we also have a big competition that's uh, 147,000 children participate in our invention competition called uh, it, um, ICW, it's Invention Convention Worldwide. We have a national competition and last year for the first time we hosted a global competition. So that has all uh, become very, very important to our mission. Uh, what I like to say uh, we're, we're, yes, we have the stories of the past, but we are an institution about the future because we're inspiring that better future. We want kids of all ages to have that can-do spirit that they can see themselves in these stories and think, I can do that too. I'll sum it up this way. Henry Ford would be proud. I hope so. His portrait is in my office. I feel like he's looking at us all the time, <laughs> inspiring us. 147,000 kids competed in the competition around inventions. What were some of the reactions from these children where they're building something with their hands, they're, they're embracing the future? What were some of the reactions for those children that participated in that program? I talk a lot about goosebump moments, having a goosebump moment at the Henry Ford, because um, we have them all the time. And when we see these kids competing and we see what they're inventing, you, I guarantee you would have a goosebump moment. Uh, they are, they're enthralled to be part of it. They are focused. Uh, they're smart, smart, smart. They get to create their invention based on a problem they want to solve. So we're not mandating a certain kind of solution in any way. They are a problem. They get to pick the problem and solve the problem. They are having wonderful experiences. They're meeting other people, other children. Uh, they're working together. It's, it is pretty special, actually. And our, our goal in the next five years is to get up to uh, a million inventors. Wow. A million inventors would be great. You're already over the million mark, Matt, because 1.7 million visitors visit the, the Henry Ford 
every year. And I want to point out, as Patricia alluded to, a lot of the, as a father of a, of a young daughter, a lot of the, the exhibits are hands-on. I'm like, all right, this is a great place to go. My daughter can touch and interact with things. And our listeners can't see it, but behind Matt is an interactive Texaco station, which we'll get into later. Matt, you have millions of individuals visiting the Henry Ford every year. As the curator of transportation, how do you ensure that the exhibits are engaging, thought-provoking, and when the child goes away, Mom, Dad, I learned something really neat today, something cool. How do you ensure that? That's really our, our goal at the Henry Ford, to inspire that next generation to be tomorrow's innovators, right? To learn from traditions of innovation in America's past. And I work alongside my colleagues. There are a number of curators who specialize in, in different aspects of American life and innovation. And we work to identify stories we want to tell in the museum and artifacts and, and objects and, and documents we need to tell those stories. And we put together what we call a collecting plan, which more or less is a curatorial wish list. And in some of those stories, we decide we are going to go out actively and get these things, capture this information while we can. In other cases, it's items to kind of keep on our radar to see if someone should donate something to us at some point or, or make an offer to us. So we, we are organized about what we're collecting. There's always a thought as to how we can use it to benefit our collection and to benefit our audiences. And uh, we, we try to maintain uh, close control over what we have so we can make as much available to the public. And when I say control, I mean intellectual control, right? So we, we understand what we have. It's cataloged, it's recorded. We digitize to the extent that we can. So you, even if you're not able to visit the campus on purpose, you can see those artifacts online and learn from those stories. And I, I want to point out, for our listeners, just Google the Henry Ford. Their website's absolutely incredible. The amount of knowledge that you can learn from the site. So the, so the team at the Henry Ford that built your site, job well done. I mean, it was absolutely fantastic. And for the individuals that have the the honor and the privilege of visiting the Henry Ford, you have an act of courage in the museum. You have the Rosa Parks bus, the bus that Mrs. Parks sat on. How did the museum secure the bus? And then how did you authenticate to, okay, that was the Rosa Parks bus. It wasn't another bus used in that time period, Matt. What did you have to do to authenticate? Did you go down to the paint chips or the wheel treads? How did you authenticate that? Yes, we were able to acquire the bus in uh, 2001. And needless to say, it's an absolute treasure in the museum's collection. One of the pieces we're most proud to to be able to preserve and, and share with the public. And you're right, the, the secret was verifying the story. Is this really the bus on which Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat in 1955? And in cases like that, we, we sometimes approach the question from the opposite direction. You know, what, what is it about this bus that might disprove that it's the one that was there? Do, is it not the right model? Is, is it not the right configuration of bus? Is it not the same as we see in period photos and newspaper clippings? So that's part of what we look for, something that, that kind of proves that this isn't what we think it is. And obviously we never saw anything like that with the Rosa Parks bus. We were also fortunate in this case that the bus company itself, the Montgomery Bus Lines, kept pretty thorough scrapbooks at the time of the movement in, in 1955 and going into the future. And they put notations in there about the number of the bus, the name of the driver, and all of this material together sort of adds up, especially when you look at the physical bus itself and realize that, yes, it's the right model, it's the right style. And you mentioned paint chips, those two, and, and those match the colors that are in some of the color postcards that exist of Montgomery in that time period. And it, it paints a compelling picture that we are confident that this this is the bus on which Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat. Patricia, is Matt telling us that this is the bus Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat. Children and visitors from all around the world that visit the Henry Ford, they have the ability 
to sit in, in Rosa Parks' seat. Could you talk about that experience and what can a guest expect when they go on the bus and they sit in that seat? Is there, do they feel an aura of energy or, or is it emotional? What do they feel? Uh, I think different people based on their own experiences have, have feel different things. Um, however, it is one of those goosebump moments that I spoke about earlier. Um, there is not ever a time that I get on that bus and don't have goosebumps. It is an amazing experience. You can sit in the seat that Rosa Parks sat in. Um, a recording of her voice comes on and you can hear in her own words what she went through. It is a very, very powerful experience. And I believe that some of the most powerful experiences are also the most simple to produce. We had to make decisions about, about that. We had to uh, allow people to get on that bus. And that was a powerful decision for us because a lot of museums might have chosen to put the bus behind a rope, um, behind a wall. And we said, no, in order for people to truly feel what it could have felt like, and no one could feel what she felt that day. But the closest we can get is to allow people to get on that bus and hear that story. And uh, we have amazing uh, stories of visitors who have sat on that bus with their small children who might be learning about Rosa Parks in the first grade, second grade, third grade. They, they tell us, they write us letters, they tell us how powerful and moving it was and how it caused their family to have conversations about equality uh, for an entire weekend. That's what we want. That's how we can try and move the dial on important issues today. One of the most famous guests, uh, President Obama, when he was in office, visited the Henry Ford, and President Obama sat in Rosa Parks' seat. But did you have a moment to, to speak with the president after he, he sat in that seat and what emotions that he felt? We didn't. Uh, we did not have the opportunity to speak to him afterwards. However, we worked really hard to make sure that his staff knew that the bus was in the museum when he was coming to visit. And we were delighted when we found out the next day that he sat in the bus and we actually got a call from his staff uh, letting us know that they took a picture and they wanted our permission to be able to release the picture. And of course, that was a, a no brainer for us. <laughs> we, yes, <laughs> please release that picture. It became one of the top 10 most liked pictures of his presidency, I'm told. Um, the photographer uh, was was. Dave uh, Sousa, Pete Sousa, he he was amazing what he captured, and it, it went viral very fast. And it happened at the Henry Ford. It did happen at the Henry Ford, yes. Matt, you, you have moments, as Patricia described, with, with President Obama when he was in office visiting the Henry Ford. And then you've got parents like myself that bring their kids to the museum and say, we want to have the Rosa Park experience, but perhaps we want to learn about, oh, what's an internal combustion engine? How do you change an a tire? What's an air filter? How do you pretend to add fluid? You have this great interactive experience. And that's what we talked about earlier when I mentioned the, the Texaco uh, play garage. To me, as, as a parent of a young child, I'm like, okay, this is cool. Could you talk about that as a parent that's going to go there and what type of experience they're going to have with their, with their children in the Texaco garage? 
Yeah, so we, we talk about car culture in the United States, right? And not just how the automobiles have changed, but how our, our built landscape has changed around the car and its needs. And service stations, gas stations are obviously a big part of that. So we have an actual circa 1960 Texaco station relocated from Massachusetts to our museum. And yes, we've converted the service bay into uh, an interactive area for, for our younger guests. We have a scaled down kid-friendly car in there. They can pop the hood. They can kind of go through the motions of checking the fluids, the, the air cleaner, check the dipstick to see what the oil's like, take off the tires. And they really get a, a sense for the kind of maintenance that was involved in automobiles. And, uh, you know, that that's, that's different. I just got my oil changed the other day, and I realized that, you know, I'm kind of sitting in my car where other people do all of these <laughs> things. But not all that long ago, folks would have to do those kinds of things on a regular basis. And, and there are some folks who still do that as a part of the hobby of, of driving and owning vintage vehicles, right? They enjoy going and being a part of the car, doing that kinds of hands-on activity. So that gives kids their first introduction to the real auto ownership experience. I have to ask from a vintage standpoint, are there white wall tires in, in the Texaco? <laughs> we, we have black walls in there right now, but no, white walls would, would be appropriate at some point. Matt, as you curate these exhibits around transportation, do you try and tell an overarching story as a visitor goes from the Texaco station to perhaps to look at the, the Lee Iacocca Dodge minivan, the impact that had. Are you trying to tell a story as you connect all these exhibits together around transportation? There are really two stories that, that we tell throughout our, our Driving America exhibit as you walk through. One is, how has the car changed over the last 120, 130 years to meet our needs, right, in terms of getting faster, more comfortable, uh, more accommodations? But then also, how have we changed to meet the car's needs, right? And it, the car has affected every part of our everyday life, how we eat, where we work, where we live, what we do for play. So you see both of those threads as you travel through the exhibit. And Patricia, zooming out to an overall institute level, how does story playing play into the overall visitor experience? They start in, in one era or they start in space or outer space and kind of work their way through. How do you tell that all-encompassing story for the visitor experience? You know, as we look at all the artifacts that we have and we make decisions about what stories can we tell based on the collecting categories that we have and and. The overarching mission of the institution is to use the American traditions of innovation, ingenuity, and resourcefulness. And we are we consider ourselves storytellers and using those stories um, and, and deciding, making decisions about what exhibitions, what stories can be told around buildings, around uh, different experiences, and how can we best engage our, our guests. But the overarching theme are themes about innovation. And so we, we really look at that. And the, the other really important aspect of what we do when we are putting new experiences together is that it really is about the people. It's less about the thing in front of you. That's a very inanimate thing. Um, it's, it's the people, the people who invented it, the people that were entrepreneurs behind making it successful, the people who were the innovators that did something new. Um, who were those people? And in many cases, you know, we grow up thinking that uh, Thomas Edison or the Wright brothers or George Washington Carver and Rosa Parks, they become bigger than life to us. We want to tell the stories of those people as ordinary people because they all started as ordinary individuals who had a belief, a vision. Uh, they persevered through thick and thin to make something happen. And we want people to know that so that they can see themselves so that they can 
grow up thinking, I can, I can do that, have that can-do spirit. And that's how we, we really approach the storytelling pieces of all the different um, components of the, the exhibitions that we have. To put it very bluntly, you can change a child's life. We hope we can change. We want, that's, that's our goal is to make a better future. You know, we talk about these innovation and invention and entrepreneurship as American traditions for us. Um, but really, at the end of the day, our main purpose is, in, is to inspire a better future. And we do that through people. And we do that through the impact that we have on young people's lives. You're having this incredible impact because if you look at Mr. Ford himself, his third company, he, he never gave up and he, and he kept going and going and going until he, he founded the, the Ford Motor Company. And that's an ins inspirational story into itself. And Mr. Thomas Edison, all um, the trials and tribulations that he went through, and there's a common denominator among these individuals. They didn't give up. A child's trying to solve a math problem, perhaps they're not going to give up now. They're going to keep trying to solve that math problem and that could lead to a breakthrough, an idea. And that's what the Henry Ford is doing for children. You're inspiring children. And Matt, and, and so a child's going to visit there in the summer, like, okay, dad's got a cool hot rod that he takes out in the summer and it's fun. And we go out for, for ice cream. But before dad's hot rod showed up, there was the Model T. And now the Model T you see in most museums, it's behind glass or, or, or rope and you can't touch it. Not at the Henry Ford. You can go for a ride in the Model T at, at Greenfield Village. What's that like? It, it's really one of my favorite experiences that we offer at, at Greenfield Village. As you say, it's one thing to, to see a vehicle on exhibit on static display. It's quite another to climb inside it and ride. And uh, kids in particular are always fascinated by a couple of things. One is just how different it is to drive a Model T. None of the controls do what you expect them to do. So that's that's bizarre. But also the, the way you connect with the environment when you're riding in a Model T is very different than when you're riding in a modern vehicle. I mean, now we, we close the <laughs> doors, turn on the AC, the satellite radio, the movie, maybe if we're sitting in the back seat, and, and you're disconnected from the world around you. In a Model T, it's very different. They're touring cars, you know, no no top in good weather, no windows. You're you're moving at a much slower speed, maybe 10, 15 miles an hour. So you know you see people, you smile as you're driving down the street and you start to understand why some of the first people who bought cars bought them for that, the experience of touring in the open road and feeling the excitement of being connected to the environment that way. A little different, but no no windows. The, the spirit of St. Louis had had no windows. It, and then on um, August 11th, 1927, it was the first time that Mr. Ford went for a flight in a plane. That was with Mr. Charles Lindbergh when he's on the tour of the spirit of St. Louis. Had a successful journey. He stops there. Mr. Ford goes for a ride. And there was basket seats. This was not a comfortable ride. There was no windows. Any insights that you can sh share about that? So you have, a, you have a legendary founder in Mr. Ford. You have a, a legendary aviator in Mr. Lindbergh. What was that like? And for the audience, before we get there, I want to point out, they're both SAE members. So yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but Matt, any insights you can share about that incredible August 11th, 1927 date, Mr. Ford went for his first flight? Absolutely. And, and uh, you know, Mr. Ford's involvement in aviation is a story unto itself that is obviously overshadowed by what he did with the Model T. But uh, no, he was manufacturing airplanes starting in the mid-1920s. And of course, Lindbergh, the most famous pilot in the world of that era, it seemed inevitable that their paths would cross. And they did, right? In August of 1927, Lindbergh was making kind of a goodwill triumph tour across the United States with the spirit of St. Louis. He landed at, at 
Henry Ford's own Ford Airport, located just, just across the way from where the museum is today, which effectively was the Detroit Airport at that time. And he offered Mr. Ford his first ever ride in an airplane. And, and I think uncomfortable is probably the best way to describe it. The spirit of St. <laughs> Louis is a, a flying gas tank, right, designed to do nothing more than get Lindbergh safely across the Atlantic from New York to Paris. There was barely room in there for the pilot. So the, the story goes that Henry Ford had to kind of squish himself onto the armrest of the seat where Lindbergh was sitting and had to crouch. There wasn't room for him to hold his head up or anything. So it, it was a, a tight fit. But yes, Lindbergh took him up for about 10 minutes or so. They flew over Fairlane, Henry Ford's house. They flew over the Rouge plant. And uh, as they came down, Ford was quoted by the newspapers as saying, it was great. Nothing to it. So <laughs> pretty special <laughs> moment. His first flight. Wasn't that one of the only times that Mr. Ford would fly in an aircraft is that correct that's true he really never flew all that much part of it i think is because of the era in which he was was working you know aviation was just starting to catch on and uh, for most of his business travel he actually used a, a private railroad car to go from place to place which would have been more more conventional for folks at, at that era but uh, you know if you're going to take just a few flights uh, you can't do much better than to take one with charles Lindbergh in the spirit of st louis i think it's an iconic moment between two iconic innovators throughout history and Matt, it wasn't just Mr. Lindbergh that Mr. Ford had a relationship with. He had a very close, as I, we mentioned earlier, personal relationship with Mr. Thomas Edison. They had uh, winter homes together in Fort Myers, Florida. They had their labs. They did really cool things. I've had the pleasure of going there. When you're researching it, it seems like Mr. Ford and Mr. Edison were very, very close friends. Could you kindly talk about their lifelong friendship, please? It's a fascinating relationship, and it started with Henry Ford basically worshiping Thomas Edison from afar, right? Ford is a teenager when Edison develops the electric light in 1879, so he certainly admired him from boyhood. Uh, they had a chance to meet in August of 1896, just a couple of months after Henry Ford had tested his quadricycle, his first functional automobile. And uh, the story is that they were at a convention in New York City, uh, out on Manhattan Beach. And uh, at a dinner after one of the, the sessions, uh, people were talking about storage batteries for electric cars and the difficulty. And someone had mentioned, well, this young fellow here, Henry Ford, is working on a gasoline car. Edison was interested, had Ford come over, sit next to him, and uh, Edison was hard of hearing, so uh, Ford got in there talking closely and drawing out sketches of what he had done, and uh, Henry Ford said after he'd explained all this, Edison turned to him and said, young man, that that's the thing, you've got it, the, the gasoline car is self-contained, you don't need to worry about batteries and electricity, you don't have the issues of water and, and fire that come with steam-powered cars, and Ford would always credit that moment with giving him extra inspiration to follow through in his work on automobiles. In fact, he said that no one had really given him a positive comment on the quadricycle up until that moment. And uh, yes, fast forward a few years after Ford Motor Company is successful and Edison and Ford cross paths again, uh, more as equals in terms of what they've accomplished now in their lives. So they become friends and, and remain so to the end of Edison's life and famously go off on these annual camping trips in the late teens into the early 1920s. And uh, by all accounts, just have a wonderful time with one another. Thank you for, for, for pointing that out because it's it's a moment like that between Mr. Edison and Mr. Ford would go on to change history. And there's so many moments like that. It's a an aha meeting or a, an idea. So thank you for pointing that out. Patricia, there's a high school on campus, the Henry Ford Academy. A lot of lifelong friendships are born in school where they meet in, perhaps in middle school or high school and they go on to be lifelong friends and their kids uh, become friends. 
Currently, 540 children attend the academy. What is that experience like? Do the children get to go into the museum, go into the research center? Could you kind of talk about that overall experience that a child that's going to the academy could experience, please? The high school is really our our ultimate mission in action. Kids are learning all over our campus. The freshmen are, are in school in the museum. Their classrooms are in the back of the museum. They have to go wow. through and walk through the museum many times a day to get to and from their classes, to go to the lunchroom, to uh, use the facilities in some way. The sophomore students and seniors campus is, is right tucked down uh, right behind Greenfield Village. And so the, the kids are integrated in our, in our entire campus. They're integrated into um, everything, everything that we do. We think about the high school and our, uh, our curators, our program team, our education staff, we work with all the teachers. It's really carte blanche for them. Um, they use uh, the exhibits. We, we help them create curriculum around the stories of the research that the curators do on the different artifacts. All of that can be built into their, to their curriculum. It is a college prep high school, and really there is nothing like it going to school. And we, we call it, hands, it is hands-on learning, it is immersive, but it's really public school and public space. So it's not like the kids are secluded into their own four walls and the only adults they see all day are the teachers. They get to be um, representatives that greet, sometimes greet guests when they're walking to and from. We tell them, you know, give directions, smile, talk to the visitors, talk to each other. You know, they've been, they, they become part of, part of everything we do. I think that's fantastic and then oh, i'm sorry I'm, I'm late for class i i was looking at this exhibit and trying to to, to learn something i can imagine what some of that that's like you have the research facilities over 25 million documents in there are children in the in the academy allowed to go there and and read documents or, or read books and learn about different aspects of history absolutely the research center is open it's, it's open to the public. We, we actually um, were closed for the pandemic, but it's still accessible. People can make appointments, but what, when we're not pandemic, it is completely open access. Uh, you, the, the children have, have opportunities. We actually, with the academy um, on our campus, we build the collections thinking about the academy, build the book collections and the archival collections also thinking about the academy in addition to the work of the institution. So, but, but you could go in and start to research something that you might be interested in. Uh, we cover all the major collecting topics of the institution and some. Uh, we have some of the most prolific uh, collections in automobile history. We have uh, quite a bit in manufacturing, in uh, trade catalogs. We have all the Sears and Roebuck catalogs from the beginning up till now. I mean, there are many, many different things that could be researched and, and understood. Um, and yes, it is open to our students. Is the original investor document when Henry Ford started the Ford Motor Company, where Henry Ford was the largest shareholder and the second and third largest shareholder were the Dodge brothers, is that historical document located in your research center as well? It is. You want to talk wow. about that a little, Matt? <laughs> That's a really fun one to look at, too. 
Yes, we, we have the original Articles of Incorporation for Ford Motor Company, uh, signed in June of 1903. And, and yes, Henry Ford is, is in there as an investor, as well as uh, John and Horace Dodge, who would go on, of course, to found their own automotive company. But before that, they were building just about all the parts that went into to Ford vehicles. So that that's always surprising how interrelated a lot of these innovators and, and automobile entrepreneurs were in the early days of the industry. They had all worked with one another or for one another in some cases at different points. One of my favorite oh. things um, that we have too is his his ledger and, and you know he went bankrupt twice before he started the Ford Motor Company and it became successful but if you look at the ledger the early ledger from when he started uh, Ford Motor Company that as we know it today uh, he was very very close to going bankrupt again and he sold his vehicle he sold a vehicle and so you can see the ledger change it's all handwritten um, and documented in columns and it's it's one of those um, artifacts, I think, that can really talk to and speak to perseverance and not giving up. You're right about perseverance and not giving up. Another gentleman who was in a very similar situation was Walt Disney. And the Walt Disney Corporation saved all of the, the Walt Disney's office and documents when he had to sell the first mouse to get the revenue and, and eventually had to get money from ABC to build Disneyland. But he was there and then he went on to changed children's entertainment forever. Mr. Ford went on to forever change the assembly line and to change the way we get around. Those are really powerful stories that you can tell through your institution. And, and Matt, you and I have a lot in common because you like to learn a little about a lot. What are some of the most interesting things that you've learned during your time at the Henry Ford? Have you just spent time in the, in the research facility and pulled out something? Wow, this is really cool. I learned something new today. I think the the one thing that that constantly surprises me in my work here is you know how however new or innovative or exciting we might think an idea is today, inevitably there was someone who tried it at some earlier point in history, um, and that, that's not to say what we're doing today isn't sophisticated or cutting edge, but the basic ideas have been around often for a very long time. Uh, we have a 1916 Woods dual power car in our collection, which is a hybrid automobile. It's got an electric motor and a gas engine and in principle it works just the same as a modern hybrid you use that gas engine to get up to speed and then the electric motor kind of takes over the gas engine can be used as a generator right or the motor turns into a generator to recharge it has dynamic braking so you can charge when you're slowing down all of these things that we think are brand new have been around now for more than a century and that goes into to storytelling patricia the museum is, is firing on all cylinders because you're inspiring children to go on and build the future. During your term as president and CEO of the Henry Ford, what are you hoping to accomplish? So I, I often talk about the institution as and, and the work that we're doing as a business as being a marriage between culture, commerce, and community. The culture as mission, the commerce as the business, the community as the, the people that we work with and impact every day. Um, and I, our, our business philosophy is to think big, to work smart, and to grow wisely. And I, I try and have those in the top of my mind, especially the think big part, as we look towards the future of the institution. Because we, you know, we're about to be 100 in seven more years. We're, we're about to be 100. And I like to use that, that foundation of who we are, our mission, um, and the, the balance of, of business and culture and community um, so that we can be a, a much bigger catalyst for change. 
I mean, we want visitors of all ages to see themselves as change agents um, and that we can use these great stories and take the um, artifacts and the collections and make them accessible to everyone. If you can't come to the campus, how can we even uh, get, get the technology even better and more accessible so that we can bring these stories and engage people of all, of all ages? And the stories ideas don't stop. You know, we, we, we're really looking towards how do we grow the stories of, of edible education that already are out there in Greenfield Village Social transformation, good example, Rosa Parks and what she did with the bus, sustainability and the environment. How do we take all of those great topics um, and, and make them, using those the past forward, but make them more relevant for today's audiences? So we're constantly trying to push the envelope and, and embrace that, think big, uh, work smart and grow wisely so that we can make that impact and change lives. You have the unique ability to make that impact if you look around decarbonization and sustainability. You have originals, you, as Matt mentioned with Mr. Ford, the electric car, and, and now that that is all the, the rage today in, in Ford with the, the Mach-E and, and the F-150 Lightning and then across GM and across the board. So you can almost kind of use history as your as your blueprint there for when you're, you're inspiring the next generation of children. As the Henry Ford seven years away from, from turning 100, what does the future of Henry Ford look like to you, Patricia? It's, it, you know, we're going to continue to build on the platform that we have, but I think that uh, the, the changes, we have to embrace the change as it comes along. It's hard to envision what that change could be in terms of the technology, but we want to grow our, our audience base, whether it's um, digitally or grow it um, on, you know, physically to the campus and then continue to, build experiences that really meet the audiences where they are. What do young people know? You know, 10 years ago, when we were just starting to get into the digital world, a 10-year-old was, was learning too. Well, now that 10-year-old is 20, and in 10 more years, they're going to be 30. So how do we continue to embrace that technology and meet audiences where they need to be met so that we can not just be a sustainable institution in and of itself, but continue that great legacy of hands-on, immersive, engaging learning, doing it with the new methodologies and the new innovations that, that come into play. Perhaps we, we had the announcement last week from J.P. Morgan Chase. They opened a bank in the metaverse. Perhaps one day that you open the Henry Ford in, in the metaverse and children from all around the world can can interact. And Matt, they can have that hands-on experience in a, in a digital, virtual way, which would be kind of neat. And with a focus on transportation, Matt, in your opinion, what is the future of the Henry Ford? We continue to collect and uh, are monitoring the next big changes that come in the automotive industry. And of course, in the last few years, uh, autonomous vehicles have been at the center of that discussion. And uh, happy to say we've already added two of those to our collections. One, uh, an experimental prototype that uh, was used in, in testing and another one that was actually used by the public. And uh, they're both great stories. The, the prototype is about the technology side of autonomous vehicles, whereas the production vehicle is about the psychology side 
Riverside. It was used at the University of Michigan's North Campus as a part of a survey. People would ride the shuttle and then fill out this online survey to talk about how they felt. Did they feel comfortable? Did they feel safe? Were they even aware that the shuttle was doing all of the work? So both of those, I think, have gotten us on the uh, the right road, if you'll, you'll pardon the phrase, to collecting autonomous vehicles. And we'll see what comes down the line. Well, I'm reminiscing on this, but a child can go from the Model T to an autonomous vehicle in one experience. You can have that whole thing there. I mentioned the Lee Iacocca minivan. My grandfather had one, and then that changed everything, so I reminisce on that. But you have, as somebody, you have all these different experiences for all these different age groups, and I think that's absolutely fantastic. So it's not just geared towards children or towards adults. I think that's the beautiful thing about the Henry Ford. You have exhibits and, and things for, for all ages. And then so I can go eventually, though my kids have kids, like we go there with our grandkids, and we can learn something new. And that's the fun thing about the Henry Ford. And Matt, as we look to wrap up this insightful conversation, what would you like the listeners to, to take away with them? There's a, a phrase we often use around the Henry Ford, dream big, don't quit. And when young kids come into the museum, I, I want them to do that. I want them to see what others before them dreamt and then accomplished. And I want them to also remember that persistence is often key in these things. You can't give up if things don't work the first time, if things don't work the 20th time. You have to, to stick at it and, and keep going. And uh, you know, if it, your idea, if it has merit, you'll, you'll make it. It'll, it'll happen. Patricia, I love the line, dream big, don't quit. And then you talk about... Think smart, work smart, grow wisely. Well said. Job well done for the work that you're doing and running the Henry Ford and, and honoring Mr. Ford's legacy and all the innovations throughout the world. What would you like the listeners to take away with them? I want everybody to come come here or engage online or watch our show, Innovation Nation on CBS, and come away thinking, I can do it. I can do it. I have a vision. I have an idea. I can do it. And if you don't have it yet, you will get it. You can do it. I want people to believe in their ability and believe in themselves. As Patricia said, you can do it for the listeners. You can do it for your kids. They can do it for your grandkids. They can do it because today is tomorrow. Tomorrow is today. And the future is hands-on innovation. Patricia, Matt, thank you so much for coming on SAE Tomorrow Today. Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening to SAE Tomorrow Today. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please kindly rate, review, and let us know what topics you'd like for us to explore next. Be sure to join us next week when I sit down with the CEO of Circular and we discuss the future of the circular economy. SAE International makes no representations as to the accuracy of the information presented in this podcast. The information and opinions are for general information only. SAE International does not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, process, service, or organization presented or mentioned in this podcast.